Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. This podcast is sponsored by the Soothe app. We all know how stressful investing in volatile markets can be. That's why I use Soothe. Soothe delivers five-star certified massage therapists to your home, office, or hotel in as little as an hour. They bring everything you need for a relaxing spa experience without the hassle of traveling to a spa. Podcast listeners can enjoy 30 bucks to their first Soothe massage with the promo code MEB. Just download the Soothe app and insert the code before booking. Happy relaxation. Hello, podcast listeners. After our two-week podcation, we're back with a lot of fun podcasts lined up. We just had John Bollinger this week, and we wanted to squeeze in an extra one, seeing as it's Super Bowl week. So we got a unique podcast today. Our guest is Anonymous, and we're going to go by his Twitter handle, EV Better. Welcome to the show. Hey, man. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Uh, I, you know, I particularly enjoy this podcast, so it's, uh, it's a real pleasure to be on. Well, good. We're, we're going to have back-to-back gamblers. Um, I'm not going to give away who our next guest is after you, but uh, we're going to have back-to-back gambling episodes. So, EV, I'm going to call you that throughout the podcast, which for the finance types will understand stands for expected value. But today's podcast is all about sports betting, gambling, handicapping. So why don't you introduce yourself? Tell us a little bit about how you got to your position today, which is working as a writer and, and handicapper. How do you, how do you describe your, what is your title? Is it, is it handicapper sports? Uh, what, what's the correct phrase? Predictive analytics, uh, sports analytics at Dr. Bob sports. So I don't say that was my, that would be my official title. Sorry, go ahead. I was going to say Dr. Bob's is a site for those that aren't aware has been around for probably 20 years and it's, it's had a statistical quantitative bent towards sports analytics and betting. So how, yeah, tell us a little bit about your background. How'd you get hooked up uh, with, with Dr. Bob? You know, I took a traditional finance background coming out of school, uh, went through an investment banking program, went into private equity, and I worked at a hedge fund, um, a longshore hedge fund for around five years. And, you know, that th- throughout this time, I always thought I would be in uh, finance for, you know, the, the rest of my career. You know, towards the tail end of my stint with the hedge fund, I decided that, um, you know, I was getting burnt out and decided that I wanted to, uh, you know, take a vacation while I was young instead of while I was too old. So took a, took, took some time off, um, went traveling, did a lot of research on different things. And, you know, all this time I was continually to invest in the sports market uh, or in the stock market, but also in the sports market. And a lot of um, new statistical techniques, predictive analytic techniques I, I used um, from the stock market I could apply to the sports market. And so 
when I got back to San Francisco, Dr. Bob is also based out of San Francisco. I got connected with him. He was looking for someone to help with a college basketball model. I, you know, worked on it with that for him for a short project. It had uh, good, really promising, good results. And through that, I ended up going full time with him. And um, we decided that, you know, I would do help with uh, baseball modeling and then take over for the football handicapping at the site. So um, me and him do football and uh, we use, you know, completely quantitative model um, with no, so, you know, we build a model, but we don't have any sort of direction on who who it's going to pick. We've seen this kind of huge interest in, in genesis of, of popularity for sports analytics and betting. Certainly Moneyball helped popularize it for the broad populace. But for those of the listeners that either aren't into sports betting or are just traditional finance types, why don't we do a quick primer for the non-gamblers out there and maybe give us an overview just very briefly on how sports betting works, um, some of the most popular bets and lines. We can talk about lines, money line, but just a real quick overview of, of how it works. Yeah, so the sports betting market is are run by uh, sports books, traditional Vegas books who set lines. You know, these lines, there are a couple different lines you can bet on. The most popular ones would be an against the spread line, um, which will happen in all sports. You know, for example, for the Super Bowl, the Patriots are favored to win by three points. So they're essentially making it a 50-50 proposition that the Patriots win by at least three points. If they win by less than three points, um, two or one, then the Falcons would win. So you're either uh, laying or taking points with a certain team. Um, that's probably the most popular bet and with the highest limits would be the, against the spread bet. The second bet would be a money line bet, which is the same thing as an against the spread bet. It's just a win probability, um, which is the spread amount of points a team is given is based off of the win probability. And it's a simple function of if the team – you know, a team that's given three points or that needs to lay three points would be expected to win by approximately 60%. So you'd be laying 150 to win 100 or, you know, that equates to 60% uh, win probability. So that's the second most popular bet, which is called the money line bet, bet. And then there's a total bet, which is on the total number of points that are going to be scored. So the total for the Super Bowl, for instance, is at 58.5. So if both teams combined scores go over 58.5, then that is you can either bet on the over or the under for that, and that's generally set as a 50-50 proposition um, with VIG or, I guess, the house cake set on both sides. And and so Vegas, for the listeners who aren't familiar with betting, you know, Vegas takes its cut, which um, roughly equates to – you know, just like in a casino or in trading on Wall Street, it's almost like the bid ask. You know, you're paying a little bit on the winning bet if you win. And it equates to what? It's roughly, it's 10% on one side, but roughly 5% overall. Is that correct? Yeah, about 4.5% overall, minus 110 odd. Um, so you pay when you lose. So you risk one. So generally, the standard bet would be 110 to 100. Mm-hmm. So you're going to pay that 10 cents extra on the dollar when you lose. It's uh yeah, it roughly equates to four and a half percent expense ratio. So you need to be above a fifty-two and a half percent handicapper to be profitable. 
which which is almost like talking about blackjack. And a lot of people say, man, I only got to get slightly above 50% right. This seems like an easy game. But in reality, much like the efficient markets of uh, investing, it, it's actually pretty hard. However, you know, the, w- there's been a lot of academic research over the years. There's been a lot of publishing, although there's not nearly as much as you see in the financial markets for various reasons. But there are some academics that talk about it. I know Justin Wolfer's out of Stanford. There's been a lot of books, some famous ones by Stanford Wong. MIT even has a sports analytics conference now, which I think is next month and has a lot of great speakers like Billy Bean of The Athletics, as well as Nate Silver from 538, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So it's become a lot more popular. But so I figured... You know, since most people are familiar with the NFL, and that's one of the most popular in Super Bowl time, we'll kind of use that, continue to use that as our example before going into some other ideas. You actually had a monster year this year. So we talk about that 52% just to break even. And if I read correctly on the Dr. Bob's, I think you did something like 70% against the spread with your picks this year, which is a pretty massive outperformance. So let's start talking about the NFL. Why don't you give us an example maybe of a factor? So in investing, we all know that, say, value has worked historically, Buffett style or momentum. What's maybe a factor that either historically has worked and maybe doesn't anymore or historically is something that you could talk about that has given betters an edge over the years that you think would be a good kind of introductory example of something that may have or continue to work in the NFL betting world. Before I touch on that, I just want to mention Dr. Bob was actually a presenter a few years ago at the MIT Sloan Sports Conference. Oh, cool. Um, and so, so that, that sports conference does have a sports betting bent. You will see a lot of analytics come from the sports betting uh, world go to that conference because figuring out player value and figuring out team value is essentially what uh, sports bettors are, are trying to do. Maybe we could get a journalism pass. That would be great. Uh, have you ever been, Evie? I'm, I've never been, um, but uh, like I said, um, the guys that I work with have been before and, and have presented there um, and been on panels. So. It's uh, I've heard mixed reviews about about the uh, the quality. You know, it's like any conference, sure. but um, it it depends on, on who's going to be going and, and, and speaking. So, all right. Well, sorry to distract you. Back back to back to the NFL. All right. Yeah. So so factors that work. So basically, what you what you talked about value momentum. There there are really um, two schools of thought in traditional finance, really, um, the way I think about it, there's fundamental and technical investing where fundamental you're looking at, you're figuring out the intrinsic value um, of a company, whether that's uh, through DCF, simplistic multiples, EBITDA, uh, PE, price to book, et cetera. And then there's the technical aspect, which you're looking at momentum, trend following, things that don't relate to the intrinsic value of that company. And in sports betting, it's the same way. You have um, the uh, sort of strength of a team that can be measured by its, you know, traditional metrics that you see, uh, net yards per pass, you know, uh, on the offense or the defensive side, play success rate, um, things that can be measured on a team basis, which I'd call the fundamental factors of investing. And then um, there's a second group that are less widely used. It's the, the technical factors which would be like a team coming off of a huge loss, uh, playing three road games in a row, 
having 14 days of rest versus seven. All these factors need to be, while they don't pertain to the intrinsic value of that team, they do pertain to a team's motivation and how they set up to play that next game. And so when you can combine these two, two types of styles, you, you really get um, just like um, you would get in any quant investing strategy looks at, would look at a value momentum, combine those to get a better tilt. You can do the same thing in sports investing and, you know, some fundamental factors, you, you know, I'd look at um, that are interesting are something like turnover differential where teams that, generally have a high turnover def- differentials, tend to regress more, uh, tend to be very successful teams because they're getting a lot of interceptions, fumbles, et cetera. But uh, these, a lot of these things have a lot of uh, high variance components to them. So you're going to see over the long term that a lot of these regress downwards. You, it's hard to sustain elevated levels of turnover differentials. So that, that'd be one uh, sort of simplistic one that you could look at as a factor that uh, – is going to be factored in any model. And what that does is it makes a lot of fundamental factors look better, like points scored, defense, because teams are getting shorter fields. And so when you can compensate for these, you get uh, more accurate predictors of how the team will do going forward. You know, it's interesting. And you think about this multi-factor approach, which you're talking about, and it's so endlessly complex. So starting to think about a market like sports betting where a factor becomes known. And the same thing happens in investing. We also often talk about price to book, which is one of the most talked about and published factors in the literature. And then a lot of money went into it. And then it's it has worked much, much, uh, uh, had a much worse track record in the following decades than it did in the early ones. And I'm sure the same thing happens in sports betting. Um, are there some, and so you compile this multi-factor model, um, and one question would be how many inputs do you actually look at in sort of this multi-factor model? And then two, you know, how do you think about either introducing new factors or removing factors that maybe worked historically that, that maybe the market has caught on to and then doesn't really have as much, uh, sort of influence as they used to? Yeah, no, uh, those are great questions. I think it's, it's the same way that you would do test any predictive model. Um, you know, there's a lot of hyperparameters that uh, go into the model. You prune, uh, you you do a lot of testing iterations and, and trying to improve these models, uh, figuring out which factors to leave in, which factors you may have to leave out, and eventually you come up. You know, what you're trying to eventually find is an edge that you have in this certain game based on a lot of these different factors, you know, a, a big difference in sports betting versus uh, the stock market is, you know, there's no, there's no bull market in uh, sports betting. You, you can't ride a, uh, a rising wave. So um, it's pure, you, you're, you're literally, your comparison to blackjack was asked in that you're literally just playing edges. And so um, trying to find out things that have been uh, priced into the market and then trying to find things that aren't necessarily priced in the market it is the game you continually play um, uh, with sports betting. So, And it's funny because we, it's, it's a um, pleasant distraction for me. There was a couple of years ago where I started to go down this dark, deep 
um, examination into sports betting. And then I kind of shook my head and said, hey, no, this isn't my day job, but it's a lot of fun. And you read about some of these factors that are fascinating to me. And, and one that had caught my mind was something like circadian rhythms, meaning a team on the East Coast, and I may get this totally backwards, but that was flying to the West Coast and playing a late game, uh, you know, meaning that their body was normally like thinking they should be asleep. And there was actually a little bit of an edge that uh, could be had there. Are there any sort of weird factors that you can talk about? And you may say, look, these are proprietary, too bad. Um, that any sort of weird or interesting factors you could talk about that maybe people would be surprised about rather than say, I think your favorite net yards per pass or whatever it was. Any, any kind of weird ones that come to mind? Yeah, I mean, I think, well, say what you just described there can be uh, accounted for in a lot of ways, you know, um, and a lot of, you'll see it a lot more in amateur sports uh, or, you know, college athletics uh, versus professional, but travel distance, um, you know, and that's one of the factors that used to have a, a much bigger difference than it has today. Distance traveled for teams going distance-wise, uh, longitude, longitudinally, latitudinally, um, does have a difference in how teams uh, play. Um, but that, that effect has been diminished over time. And, you know, sort of the narrative behind that is that travel's gotten a lot easier for these teams, right? So, um, you know, before a college team was taking a bus and couldn't study, but now they have iPads to watch film on, uh, on a, on a flight and it makes it a lot easier to prepare for the next opponent. Things like that, um, are interesting and you all have to keep watch. Um, I would say some, some interesting ones that, you know, may be well known would just be, you know, the field type, um, you know, playing, you know, as it relates to football, whether you're playing on, uh, grass, astroturf, um, open stadium, closed stadium. I mean, these, these have statistically significant impacts on, uh, point totals and, um, style and different styles of teams benefit from different styles of, um, you know, surfaces. So, uh, you, you can, you're looking at really any, any type of factor that you can quantify or measure or turn into a factor. Um, you know, we'll try to test and see if it has an impact on to, uh, the predictive accuracy. Does kind of consensus betting, you know, there's a lot of talk of, and a lot of sites will publish where the percentage of bets that are lining up on a certain side. Does that come into play at all? This kind of anti-consensus or betting against the crowd? Yeah. So, you know, it, it does, and it, it, and it has an effect in a way. So for NFL, for instance, you know, the, the way that, uh, you know, the way that you, when I talked about the fundamental and technical aspects of evaluating um, games, their early season versus uh, mid-season is a different way that you evaluate. And you see a lot more better biases come into play early in the season. And the reason for that is, is because you, it's impossible really to gauge team strength off of preseason indicators or because you don't really know how X player is going to, to factor in to their new team. Um, and, you know, especially in a league like the NFL where there's a, a high amount of turnover early in the season, you're going to have preseason grades on these, on these teams. Uh, but it's hard to measure the actual team strength without seeing them play the game. 
So what you'll see early on in the season is what you just mentioned, better biases coming into play. Like, you know, I know you're a big Broncos fan, you know, early in the season because they were in the uh, because they uh, were in the Super Bowl last year, they had high expectations going into, into this season. Um, you know, now this year they didn't make the playoffs. So next season you're going to see better, the better bias be that they're not that as great of a team as you thought they were coming into this season. And a lot of times you'll see over under reactions based on certain, based on the way a team performed last year and based on how, you know, the public is going to view them. And through that, that's how the bookmakers then set the price. And that's where you can try to take advantage of your edge. That was sort of it. Just basically, um, and and then also, you know, I guess you'll, you'll see better biases uh, all throughout the season. But uh, for for me, it really takes place in the early season, and then it's uh, sort of pricing anomalies later in the season. But early in the season, uh, a lot of what I'm looking at is better biases and how to how to how to capture how the betting market is going to view certain teams when there's no real concrete evidence on whether a team is this much better than, than they should be or not. It was interesting because the, the, the fading of the consensus was something I'd written about a few times on the blog and, and we have a internal company wide network where we, you bet f- uh, the games against the spread. And, you know, for me, I, I just always bet the anti-consensus and it had one had a pretty good year this year. Historically, I figured um, I seem to remember it comes in around the extremes or 55 percent against the spread. So good and enough to maybe beat the VIG, but not that crazy interesting. And so, of course, being the overconfident guy that I am, um, entered the super contest, which Hilton puts on, uh, I believe, and has been going on for over a decade where you have to pick five games against the spread each week. And so did this in 2014. And the winner usually is in the 60% range, somewhere between 60 and 70%. And so I figured, you know, if this has a 55% edge, I just need a little luck, maybe a little magic and can hop into the top decile from maybe just the top quartile. And sure enough, 2014, was the highest percent winning for the winner was like 72%, which of course said, I'm never going to play again, but I've continued to win the inter office this year. Jeff's looking at me because he came in dead last. And that includes Jeff, by the way, I missed an entire week. (laughs) So anyway, I think what you're touching on is a great point. And that's because, you know, it's a common misconception that books set the lines to get even action on both sides. And, you know, there's been research done um, there's a good paper out by uh, Stephen Levitt, the author of Freakonomics, basically that, um, you know, these sports books, they shade their lines um, based on how on well-known better biases. Um, and these biases include, you know, loving, you know, historically good teams uh, having. And so they'll sh- they will shade these numbers to reflect this side. And so because they know they want action on the other side to increase their profitability. And that so, particularly, um, that particularly happens in the, the Super Bowl, is that correct? Well, so the, the Super Bowl, yeah, is an, interesting, is an interesting aspect because, yeah, there's a, a huge bias. It's, it's one of the largest, it, if not the largest, uh, publicly bet sporting event of the year. And so you're going to get a lot of first-time bettors um, who don't, you know, look at, you know, hundreds of games in a season. And so when they see a, a, a team, you know, they see a team like the Patriots and they see a team like the Falcons, um, 
a bias uh, that a lot of people have is to root for the underdog and uh, to bet on that money line where you're getting, you're getting plus money. You're getting, um, you know, you're betting a hundred dollars to win more than a hundred dollars. And so what sports books will generally do is they'll shade their lines uh, downwards on that money, money line. So you're going and the, and, and conversely do the inverse to the favorite. So you'll get a cheaper price betting the money line on the favorite than you would um, in a typical game. And so, you know, there are certain intricacies throughout a sports betting world like this where the books are not necessarily trying to take balanced action. A lot of times what they're trying to do, you know, is increase their profitability. And uh, so it's, that's why a contrarian betting strategy like the one you meant, a simple one like that, can be pretty successful. And this is interesting. So it's, it, to me, it's interesting because the NFL would seem to be the equivalent of a very efficient market where there's a lot of money chasing it, big bets. Um, and so you also weigh it in some other sports, right? So I know you do Major League Baseball, which from a gambler's perspective to me, or college, do you do, and you do college sports, college football and basketball? Is that right? Or no? Basketball. So I've, I've done models. I've built predictive models for college basketball, which I'm improving uh, actually as we speak. And then I, I did a preliminary uh, baseball math model uh, over the summer working uh, with Dr. Bob on, on these projects. And, um, you know, these are, um, yeah, just different, different betting markets where, um, you know, you're trying to do the same thing, gain an advantage over the house. And so the cool thing about that is that, you know, in, in the investment world, we'd call this breadth. So from a gambler's perspective, if you have an edge, the more bets you take, the better it is because it spreads out the short-term variability. So sports like Major League Baseball and basketball are great because they have a massive amount of games, massive amount of teams. NFL is only going to be 16 weeks per year plus pre-postseason. So to the extent you can gain an edge in those. So talk a little bit about the differences in some of the sports. So what are the main differences between handicapping and analytics on the NFL versus major league baseball versus say college basketball? What's, what's similar and what's totally different? Yeah, no, that's, that's a, that's a good question. The, there's a lot of differences. And, uh, you know, one of the big ones you mentioned on was the duration of the season. Um, you know, a big one that you see um, in college basketball and baseball that goes in conjunction with that is um, the level of data. You know, the level of that, de- you know, baseball is really the first uh, sport to sort of force at the forefront of sort of this, uh, you know, saber metrics, predictive analytics in sports. It's really, there, there are data sets out there where that, that we use that are pitch by pitch where you can get literally the rotation count, um, the number of spins that baseball's pitching, uh, spatial coordinates of uh, the data. So before, where, when a pitcher, a pitch leaves a pitcher's hand to when it hits the catcher's glove. So um, there's a lot of really granular data in the baseball field. There's a lot of games played. And so with that, you know, you have to make, you have to come uh, to the betting market with the knowledge that this data is out there for everyone. So um, you have to know that, can I incorporate this? Where, 
whenever you're making a bet, you have to just ask yourself, do you actually have an edge in this market um, versus the sports book versus other market participants? And so with a sport like baseball, you're going to have a lot more data. You're going to need to be a lot more precise, uh, factor in everything from umpires to weather to stadium size uh, to type of pitcher. So from, from that standpoint, these sports can be very different. You know, college basketball is, is also different than football. But where they all share similarities um, and where, you know, really all predictive analytics share similarities is, is that you're just trying to reduce the variance within uh, these systems to come out with sort of the true, the true odds of the game, um, no matter what it is. So in basketball, high-variance events could be um, how well a team shoots uh, from the three-point line that day. You know, I talked about for football, high-variance events could be the turnovers. For baseball, um, you know, the contact percentage, you know, the difference between uh, a single and an out, you know, could be a few feet over um, over a second baseman's glove. So there's a lot of sort of variance within these sports that you then have to try to you try to figure out where these sort of leverage points are and then reduce them all um, to try to find an edge. So while they're different sports, the concepts are pretty much the same in trying to gain an edge in these sports. Well, it seems to me like there's a lot of sports out there and you're kind of covering the major ones, but they would seem to be underexploited, meaning, you know, the, the NFL and Major League Baseball, in my mind, and I could be wrong, seem to be probably the most sophisticated with most people chasing it. But I don't know, NASCAR or I don't even know if there's betting markets in, in curling or cricket or everything else around the world. Is there sort of a range where you would say, hey, here's some markets that there's probably a lot of opportunity, that there's not a lot of people waiting in? Just the same way in the U.S., if you're focusing on small microcap stocks where no analysts are covering it, or you're focusing on Malaysian you know, companies, there's probably a, a bit of an edge to have where um, there's not as much competition versus the 10,000 per person who's following Apple um, are there some sports that you think that there's a lot of uh, opportunity and, and fruit still to be had or what's, what's your perspective there? Yeah, I, you know, you, you made a great analogy with small caps versus the apples of the world. And it's the same thing. The a big difference in sports betting is the, the limits that can be imposed to you uh, finding a counterparty. Um, so you could spend all the time you want and you could probably get, be the best, uh, predictive modeler in curling. Um, but, you know, how much money are you going to make from that, really? Because, you know, the limits on these, on, on you know, a, a curling event or some sort of esoteric sport um, is going to be really low. Um, where when you get to these major sports, um, you're going to see higher limits. And also you're going to see more, you're going to see more market participants in a sport like the NFL. And the NFL is a unique sport. You know, I would say, more unique than baseball or basketball or even basketball um, in that the public likes to bet the NFL. The public doesn't necessarily like to bet baseball or basketball um, where, you know, every person that you meet uh, is going to have an opinion on football. So you could say that that's a disadvantage, but you could also, you know, like we talked about earlier with the biases, consider that an advantage in some respects. While, yeah, I agree that the lines are probably softer on more esoteric sports. There, there's also a lot more, a lot less capital to be had 
um, just because of the way books set limits. You can't move around $10 million bet sizes, betting cricket and curling is what you're saying. Um, <laughs> cricket, you know, cricket, I'm not sure about it, but, um, but curling, I, yeah. I was going to say, this is a great segue, you know, and, and this is kind of it a first podcast. There's so much to be talked about here. We may have to have you on regularly, but so we've kind of talked about overview about NFL and a few sports, but one of the things thinking about, so assuming you have an edge and like, let's say your NFL system, let's say you're confident that you have an edge. Now that doesn't mean you're going to win every year. It doesn't mean you're going to print 70% a year, but let's say you have an expected value where, and, and what's a good estimate? Do you, do you kind of, is there something you target? Is it 60%? Is there a certain sort of number that you're looking at on a per year basis, by the way? You're talking about returns? No, 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 no. Like percent, percent wins. Okay, so we're, we're going to go into the returns and money management in a second, but but is there kind of a like against the spread percentage of games that you target or is that totally not something you even really focus on? No, I mean, absolutely. That's, that's something we, we quantify how much of an edge we think we have, um, but it's, you know, been shown that it's hard to, to actually... It, most people are overconfident with their edge. So we, we generally try to either not talk about that or um, really be conservative about how much of an edge we think we have. So, you know, if say we think that this game is mispriced and um, instead of minus three, the Patriots should be minus six favorites, you know, that, that would be a big discrepancy in terms of, uh, in terms of win percentage, you know, that would that probably say you have a, a 10% plus edge, which uh, would be a huge edge. And I would say that, you know, um, you, you really have to study uh, your methods, your process, and, and make sure that, and, and just be generally be conservative on what type of edge you think you have. It's going to be different for every game. You're not going to have a consistent, uh, you know, 3% edge every game. Some games, just like in uh, when you're picking stocks, some stocks, um, will show value uh, based on the indicators and filters that you have. Some games will show up um, with a 5% edge. Some will show up with a 2% edge. But, you know, generally, just like with investing, you want to err on the side of um, conservatism and how much of an edge you actually think you have. And, and that's a great example. I mean, talking about Warren Buffett, I actually watched his documentary last night on HBO, which listeners uh, is great, by the way. But he talks about, you know, the Ted Williams fat pitch, right? So waiting for that fat pitch. And the funny thing about, you know, a service like yours, but in investing as well is it's not that sexy to talk about, hey, man, we're targeting 55 or 58% win rate, despite the fact that that will make you a rich man one day. The same thing as investing. If you say, you know what, you know, we're, we're expecting this globally diversified portfolio to do X, you know, the, the sexy stuff is that the people saying, Oh, we think you can do 20% a year as un, unrealistic as that is. But people and you mentioned are looking for the lottery tickets on betting where they bet these huge underdogs at a money line of 500 same way that an investor is looking for small caps or these these lottery tickets but on average they don't work so let's transition a little bit you said um, i've seen a quote where you said sports analyst analytics is a misunderstood asset class and i want you to explain a little bit about that so that if you did have an edge in say nfl and major league baseball and college um, basketball you know Treating that as an asset class, that's something that you think you can have a positive expected value. How does that fit in? How do you incorporate that 
And how do you start to think about kind of money management and bet sizing the same way you would as one as a as a standalone portfolio, but also as a portion of someone who has a, a larger investment portfolio? Yeah, I think, you know, just like when I was working in finance, uh, you know, it's, you use proportional bet sizing um, to determine these, uh, you know, how much you're going to put on each ind- independent event because sports is a unique alternative asset class in that it's uncorrelated with the rest of the market. Um, I think that's a, a, one of the, its biggest advantages, whether the stock market's going, you know, when the stock market goes up, the housing market, you know, there's some correlation um, with that. And, you know, like we saw in the financial crisis, when, um, you know, things go down, you know, beta goes, you know, to walk toward, towards one, um, you know, but that's not going to affect how the Golden State Warriors are going to play. That's not going to affect how the Atlanta Falcons are going to play. So you're, you get these independent, uncorrelated asset classes where if you do truly have an expected edge, you can really calculate and maximize your returns using, you know, simple formulas like the Kelly Criterion in which you determine your edge in the, and the odds that you're, you're given to come up with a proportional bet size to your bankroll. And uh, through that, you know, you, you can start to, you know, just like if you're playing blackjack or just like if you were doing any sort of events which are market agnostic, um, you know, it's, you're, you're not trying to predict the outcome of these events. You're trying to play these edges that you have in the market and try to maximize the return from these different edges. So, so for, for, you know, one of the biggest mistakes we see people make, not just in investing, but, but also in sports betting and in the casino is over betting. So they'll sit down at the blackjack table and they'll be betting 10 or 20% of their bankroll on any given bet. And like you mentioned, that's probably a recipe for disaster just because of the short-term variability. The the old school flip a coin six times in a row, you, you, there's, there's a chance you're going to get six heads. And a lot of people just don't think about that. And so um, I saw one uh, a quote you had somewhere that said, talking about bet sizing and, and thinking about Kelly, it says, your bet sizing is kind of um, correlate, how much are you willing to lose? And so for a lot of people, they say, my God, that sounds boring. But if you have a, say, $100,000 bankroll, a lot of these bets being placed at one, two, three percent of, of total bankroll, but scaling that up and down based on um, the, the edge you think you have or the particular opportunity, right? So we, we have a lot more to talk about. Um, but, but by the way, so what what do you think is capacity? So so Bill, let's say Bill Gross is listening to this podcast. He says, "Oh man, I need to start a betting fund, and I want to target three different sports." What's capacity like? Is it ten million bucks? If he really wanted to have an army of disguised betters in Vegas, like like Billy Walters used to in the computer group, or is it a million bucks? Is it a hundred? Like what's what's a capacity on? Uh, a sports betting operation if someone was to, to go about it? Yeah, as someone who looks to maximize um, earning potential from this endeavor, I, this is definitely something that I've looked into. And it's, you know, we think about it from a domestic perspective, just like, um, you know, like you point out a lot of times, people look at stocks from a domestic perspective. But when you look globally, if you look at countries like the UK, Australia, um, there's a lot, there's a lot more deregulation around, 
sports betting um, in these countries. And so you'll see uh, funds set up that will place millions of dollars on, you know, a lot of times a soccer match just because those are most heavily bet overseas. But you'll see these, um, you know, depending on what sport you, you want to bet, depending on what edge you want to have, there are a lot of markets, especially overseas. We think domestically about Vegas casinos, and that is a small fraction of the amount of volume that gets transacted globally. Um, I think I've seen uh, from so if you're talking, I think I've seen from the AGA, you know, it was estimated $100 billion in transactions that went on um, last year in gambling, um, in sports betting. And um, globally, that number is going to be much bigger um, because, you know, obviously when you have entities able to bet into these markets, you're going to get a lot of, a lot bigger, a lot bigger players. It's just, it's higher stakes poker is what you're playing. Um, so here, because of the regulation that surrounds it, making it a little more murky on how much um, you can get down and the limits and things like that, it's smaller domestically, but internationally, if you're willing to look there, uh, you're going to find much bigger markets. Well, there's some stat already that Macau's revenue is something like four times Vegas already. Just something that's just totally astonishing. And I, I see that one of the most gambling-centric uh, cultures in the world is getting ready to add casinos. Is isn't Japan coming online with casinos? I think I saw that the other day. Anyway, so it's it's interesting. You know, the uh, I, I, I think a lot about it. But let's let's move on. We so we now are going to move on to a little bit of quick hits. So these are shorter questions. Feel free to answer as long as you want. But also, there are some questions that were submitted from Twitter, and if the responses are any indication, sports betting is a very large interest for a lot of people because we got a ton of questions. Um, so feel free to take as long or as short as you want with these questions. First one, what's the worst bad beat you've seen uh, either personally or, or just in uh, in sports betting over the last few years? Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> I, I could go into a lot of different stories on uh, different bad beats. I mean, I think any time you have... You know, the, the traditional, you know, you bet the under on a, on a football game and it's garbage time um, for a team. I, I think last week's um, Pittsburgh-New uh, England game, I think, that, you know, the, the, the game was well out of hand. I think the Patriots were up 21-plus points. And, you know, the game is really meaningless under three minutes to go for the Steelers, but they're still scoring points. And for the regular person, you're not watching the game, but for someone who has a financial interest in the game, you're on the edge of your seat being like, and just thinking to yourself, why is this guy trying to throw touchdown passes when the game's out of reach? Just give up. And so, you know, the over will hit and, you know, it'll just be one of the many bad beats. But, you know, you take the good with the bad because a lot of times you'll get it the other way. So um, I think just understanding the variance, um, the the inherent disorder that's going to be in football. You have to, to, to do this um, and look at games over a long season. You have you have to expect it, and it's going to go both ways. So um, I, I remember mine before, before I became a quant. 
way back when. One of the reasons I became a quant is because I took on way too much risk. I would take as much risk as you could give me. And I remember I had something like a nine game parlay, which listeners, if you don't know, you have to like get all nine games right, which is the equivalent of buying Apple in 1980 and then forgetting about it for 20 years. It's very, very small chance. And so I was getting ready to win this massive game parlay. And then Deion Sanders, which was who was playing for the 49ers, returned some punt or kickoff for a touchdown, which made me lose the entire parlay. Um, And I will never, (laughs) never forget that. All right. Next quick hit. Have you looked at any anomalies or thought about intra game? You know, I I know there's a lot of markets in in betting that kind of do these futures style where the, the betting can go on during the game as well as quarters and, and full game lines. Have you looked into that at all, or do you focus purely on the, uh, the, the full game bets? No, absolutely. I think, you know, we're really in, um, we're really in an inflection point of how sports marketplaces are evolving. You know, traditionally the bets I talked about earlier on the show, you know, against the spread totals, money line those were all you know pre-game bets that were set now these books will set in-game lines you can literally bet in between drives you know they, they'll adjust their lines based on win probabilities and uh what i've been doing this past season to some good success was just giving out um i made you know based off of some of my football models did a halftime line where at halftime uh I had um, an automated run, an automated program simulate um, how the game would play out, and if there was an edge based on the halftime line that most all sports books would put out, you know, I would tweet that out and say, hey, you know, the book says that there's a 52% chance my simulations have that a 55% chance or whatever that may be. So I think that in game there there is a lot of opportunity too where a lot of people study the full game lines, but um, in-game probabilities, halftime, um, a lot of these things are newer and just with newer, um, newer propositions, there's going to be less data. There's going to be less people that are really good at that. So I think that, uh, you know, these are going to be things that are going to continually continue to evolve and things that definitely we're looking at, um, exploring and exploiting. So, well, I mean, back in the day, a lot of the books, I mean, you go back far enough, they used to do the full game, half game, quarter lines or whatever. They would just divide it in half. And one of the reasons, and that's obviously very suboptimal, but one of the reasons that the halftime line may have an edge is because the books have less time to come up with that line and less time for the market to react. And so that's a potential anomaly that, that may be interesting um, as well. Uh, next question, Twitter. How does a sport with a small dispersion in scoring, like soccer, affect how you bet versus one with a higher level, like basketball? Yeah, so that's a, I mean, that's a great question that has a lot of levels to it. And I would say, you know, anytime you look at a different sport, you have to look at how much skill versus how much variance is, is within the sport. Um, so with a game like basketball, you're going to have – you know, around 100 processions a game in a professional game, around 65 in a uh, collegiate game. And so, you know, more often than not, the true winner um, is going to come out on top. It's going to be very rare that you see the Golden State Warriors lose to a team that they shouldn't lose to. Um, Whereas, 
you know, in, in sports with fewer possessions like hockey, you know, soccer is a little, a little different. Um, they have a bit more, but a game like football, or I compare football to soccer, um, you know, I'd estimate the variance component to be around 25 to 35%. So because, you know, in football, you only have 22 drives a game. In soccer, I'm not sure the correct exact amount of possessions, but it's far fewer than what you're going to have in um, basketball. So, you know, if you can capitalize on one of these opportunities, then you're going to have a much higher chance of winning, and uh, it's going to be a lot harder, even if you're an underdog, for the favorite to come back. So um, I would say that that's one of the – whoever asked that question, that's one of the key fundamentals in, in first steps in breaking down any sport is determining that sort of skill-to-luck component that is involved within the game. Uh, Michael Malbison, who I think is at Credit Suisse now, has written a lot on this, and uh, as well as Charlie Ellis, and we'll add some links to the show notes, but talking about games that are a little more dependent on luck versus games that are a little more dependent on skill. Really, really interesting stuff. Um, we'll include in the show notes. Next qu- uh, quick question. Have you thought about any lines that uh, in a sport that change over the course of the day based on um, the concept of betters losing in the morning and becoming increasingly uh, aggressive for long shots in the afternoon. And the common thoughts would be either horse racing or, of course, the, the NCAA tournament, where later in the day, people that lost all their cash are getting increasingly aggressive in, in poker and a lot of sports we call this going on tilt. So trying to win back that money, is that something you think books or you guys adjust for or uh, ever thought about? I, I haven't adjusted for that. Um, but I would say that, you know, there are, there are obviously uh, better biases that folks take advantage of. So, um, you're going to tell you us know, what they are. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a book realizes that they've had a huge winning day and that people are trying to make money back and uh, know which way to shade a line. Uh, you know, that would not surprise me. That's not, that's not a factor that I've looked into. Um, but, you know, just knowing that it's, it's not a true market where there's a buyer for every seller. Um, it's you versus the sports book. So knowing that, um, you know, it, it it's not surprising that they try to take advantage of sports that are biases. One, one more question, a quick hit, and then we're going to move on to the Super Bowl. What do you think about the hot hand? (laughs) You know, the hot hand is something that I'm not a believer in, Um, you know, just because, you know, like I pointed out earlier, the, the goal in predicting these outcome of these matches is reducing variance. Um, and so, uh, when you think about streaks when you think about, uh, flipping, you know, flipping a coin, um, you know, six, six times heads in a row doesn't make the next time any more or less likely that it's going to be heads. And so that, you know, I believe that, you know, the, you know, there's a true, uh, value of what a shooter is shooting, um, what a passer um, his completion rate will be, and um, you know they're going to regress how quickly or, or how quickly or slowly that that happens. You know is is the tough part in determining, but um, eventually, you know I, I, I think there's a lot of variance within these games that we try to build narratives upon. 
Uh, that's great. Um, and that's interesting. So you and I had actually talked about this before, and there's a good book by Anzwath Damodaran that just came out. And one of the biggest challenges for a quant like myself or you who, who has a, a quant betting model is putting a narrative around that system. So it's pretty boring to go on CNBC and, and then be like, Meb, why do you not like, you know, U.S. stocks or what is going on? If in, in particular, it was really hard for me in the early days when we were just talking about trend following. And so if you ever watch David Harding of um, Winton Capital go on, it's the most mind-numbing thing for the interviewers. And I actually sympathize because for a quant, it's just like, that's what the model says. And that's the answer to like 99%. So trying to weave in a story around why you like uh, these various opportunities is tough, but we've been getting a little bit better mainly because we hired Jeff. But so for you, all right, we're going to move on to the Super Bowl. Now I'm going to start asking you some specific questions. And if you say, I'm sorry, that's paywall, that's fine. Um, who do you like? Uh, New England minus three. Who do you, who do you think is going to win? Yeah, so, you know, the game is is really interesting from a perspective that New England has been something like uh, 14 and 3 against the spread. I mean, 14 and 3 against the spread this season, continually continually outperforming market expectations, um, which, you know, is is rare to happen. And um, but Atlanta is a historically good offense. And, you know, basically, you know, like you said, it's, it's boring to say, but, you know, the models has a slight lean towards Atlanta. It's not a play either way, but um, it would be taking Atlanta plus the three. Um, a lot of that has to do with their historically good offense and New England's strength of schedule adjusted defense is actually not that good. Um, so um, taking the, Taking the points plus uh, taking the Falcons plus the points um, would be the lean. Um, the better play, I think, is on the under, or that the model has is on the under. Um, you know, Atlanta's a, just like New England's an interesting team outperforming market expectations against the spread. Atlanta is something like four, fourteen and two on the over to the season. So the market has continually, you know, undervalued their their ability to score on any type of defense. And uh, in last week, they had a toast at 60, which was the highest ever seen in a playoff game and one of the highest in something like 17 years. And uh, it went over that total. You know, the the market has continually to set expectations high. And now you have a total set of 58.5, where the average total for Falcons games during the season was 50. So you're seeing a lot of uh, you're seeing a pretty a pretty big market correction. You know, I think there's there's a lot of value sort of on that under. So um, I think that's the better play. And so you mentioned Atlanta, which I like to hear because the Broncos fan, I kind of despise the Patriots. We got a lot of Pats fans in the office. Um, but you also said in your article about the Super Bowl betting anomaly, didn't you say that's it? And maybe I read it wrong. Isn't that sort of favoring? the Pat's money line, or did, did I read that wrong? No. So what that's saying is you're going to get the, so I wrote an article about the anomaly that the books like to shade um, their money lines based on knowing that the Super Bowl is going to be the most, one of the most publicly bet games and knowing that instead of taking Falcons plus three, what most people will do is take Falcons plus the money line. Um, you know, my research has shown that about 9% more people uh, 
So say that the 50, 40% of people are going to bet on the Falcons plus, plus three points. Then that would mean about 50% of people um, are going to bet on the Falcons plus the money line. So you're going to see an overexposure to that money line um, that the books will generally try to compensate for by shading those money lines lower for the Falcons and getting less of a payout for the Falcons and getting a discount for the favorite or for the Patriots. So it wasn't an article saying that you should bet on the Patriots or you should bet on the Falcons. It was a, it, the, the point I was trying to convey was that if you want to bet on the Patriots, you should consider taking the money line because you're going to get a discounted money line um, price, if that makes sense. Interesting. Uh, okay. Well, um, a quick, a couple other quick ones. Coin toss. You want heads or tails? What's the quant, what's the quant model say? <laughs> I, I, I feel like the, uh, there's a lot of funny. Pro- yeah, there's a there's a lot what's of funny that? prop bets. I'm gonna just read you a couple because um, the, there's the classic. How long is it gonna take to sing the national anthem? And the average historically is around two minutes, but the line I've seen online is over two and a half, uh, two minutes and fifteen seconds. So maybe Luke Bryan is a is a long winded singer. I don't know, but there's there's some of the really funny ones, and, and I can't imagine any of these next three would would be under. So like, there's one that says, "How many times will Gronk or Gronkowski be said on TV during the live broadcast?" And the over under is only three. Doesn't that seem like that'd be a really low over under? I mean, I feel like they pan to him almost every time Pats have the ball. Is that not a? Do you think that's going to go over, or is, is that something that I'm just crazy about? You know, that's, uh, it, it depends on where he's placed in the stadium, right? Because I think if I was, I haven't looked into it, but I think we saw a lot of him in the AFC Championship game because he was in the press box with um, the owner, Bob Kraft, and so they could pan to him a lot. But depending on where his placement is in the Super Bowl, um, you know, they may or may not pan to him too much. Um and depending on how, how much you can view, view them. So that, you know, that, that would be what I would try to look for if I was trying to evaluate that bet. Um, but, you know, with these prop bets... They also have how many times will Giselle be shown on TV and the over-under is only one and a half. I feel both of those are really undervalued. I think it's going to go way over. See, the, uh, the, the thing that I think you have to think about is there's a lot of things that they're going to show during the Super Bowl, right? There's, they're going to have to show Giselle once. They're going to have to show Gronk a couple times. Um, but there's only so much time in the Super Bowl because then you have all these commercials you have to show. You have to show, um, obviously, the game itself. So, yeah, it, it's it's interesting how they set these lines. And, um, you know, if if I had a, a data set, I would try to figure it out. But um, barring that, it's just... The Gronk data set is, is a limited amount of uh, games. Although you could probably go back to every game he's been hurt in and say how many times... Have they said the word Gronk? Uh, that seems like a good arb, and it seems to me like it would be over. And then they they even have a line that you can bet that says, "Who will Donald Trump pick to win the game?" And he's obviously friendly with Brady, um, and so it's actually Pats is one to one to ten, and Falcons is eleven to two. But he's so unpredictable. I feel like that's almost a good bet just to take him randomly picking the Falcons. I don't know. You also had a good article. And then going back to this kind of bet sizing, talking about the Super Bowl. So this ties in a little bit about just money management and investing. And 
you know, this is on my mind because I watched the Buffett documentary. Um, and we'd actually written an article called something like Buffett or Berkshire, which would you rather invest in? And so you have a very recent article that just came out called Belichick or Buffett. Who would you rather invest in? Could you talk about that article a little bit? Yeah, it was just a fun concept. Um, you know, when I was researching uh, how well the Patriots have done since Belichick took over, I mean, it, it's astounding. If uh, he's like 75% uh, win percentage straight up. And when you think about the NFL and how much parity they try to induce with free agency, the short um, – the short careers that these players have, the turnover on these team, on these rosters, um, you know, it's really amazing. The it's really an amazing job he's done in managing uh, that team and keeping them afloat, even when Tom Brady got hurt. I mean, he, they went 11 and five when Matt Castle was quarterback. Um, so this guy has done it uh, with a different cast of characters, and it's hard to say that it's anything but Belichick dominating not only NFL but also the betting market. He's 59% against the spread in around, uh, in 17 seasons. So, um, is that, is that varied? Is that stayed pretty consistent or I guess you said they were like 14 I mean, and it, two it this definitely year. varies from season to season. Like I said, this season, he's been something like 14 and three against the spread, which is an incredible, incredibly profitable. Um, if you just bet on the Patriots every week. And so what I said was, well, what if you just bet on the Patriots every week, since 2000 when Belichick became head coach of the Patriots. And I took that and I uh, basically looked at that against Berkshire Hathaway uh, A shares and said, what would um, your return be based on betting on Belichick every week versus betting on or versus being fully invested in Warren Buffett given $100,000. And basically the conclusion was that, you know, Buffett I think would have, turned your money, $100,000 into something like 430000 while Belichick would have turned it into something like 375000 So not a, so a difference, um, but some caveats are that with Belichick, you know, the NFL season, like you pointed out, is only 17 to 21 weeks of season. So two-thirds of the year, you're going to have 100% track powder. Yeah, so I bet if you included the money sitting in T-bills, that actually would outperform by quite a bit. That's right. Exactly. So if you're investing, you're taking that dry powder and investing in, you know, a safe asset class like T-bills or a managed feature account or anything else, other strategy, you have that ability with this Belichick strategy. Um, so, and another interesting point, I was going to say another interesting point is the max drawdown. Obviously um, all stocks were hit hard in uh, the great recession. Berkshire was no different. You had a drawdown of around 50%. Um, the max drawdown you're going to see with proportional Kelly sizing uh, was around 27% um, in, a, in a run that was uh, during actually the Patriots' undefeated season when market expectations caught up to them um, after they won eight straight. If you remember, the Patriots were undefeated in 2007. After that, the market said, we're going to start putting a really high spread on the Patriots every week, and they subsequently underperformed for quite a while. It was, uh, but the max drawdown for this Belichick strategy was only 27% versus 50% um, by investing in Buffett. So it was just a fun study. Um, I don't think, I don't think many people have the financial discipline to leave $100,000 with Buffett for 17 years or bet on the Patriots every week. But it was just something that I wanted to look at. 
All right, so we're not going to launch the Belichick ETF. We would have some sort of deflate ticker. What would DFLT? I, I don't know. Um, sorry for all my Pats fans. All right, so we got to start winding this down. We're running out of time. But um, so for all of the aspiring young quant sports bettors out there, um, talk to me a little bit about resources. So if someone's interested, obviously, what are some of the best, if you have any favorite books? And then websites, and then lastly, like software or databases. Yeah, so for books, I would say um, just looking at, uh, for money management, I think Fortune's Formula, um, which talks about, you know, Ed Thorpe, Claude Shannon, how they derived sort of the Kelly criterion, what it came to be. Um, and then for sort of domain-specific knowledge, I think that there are, you know, pretty easily accessible resources out there for different sports. So for for the NFL, I think that this book written in the late 80s called The Hidden Game of Football um, has a lot of concepts that still aren't implemented today in the NFL, um, like when you should go for it on fourth down, um, the value of the value of getting the ball on the 20-yard line versus the 25-yard line um, and, and quantifying that. A lot of that – that book really goes into detail in that. Um, for basketball, I think Dean Oliver's Basketball on Paper um, has a lot of sort of quantitative metrics that are still used today in terms of the four factors. A lot of it has been advanced since then, but I think those books are great starting starting points um, for anyone looking to get into it. Um, in terms of software, I think there's a, there's a cool app out there called Onside Sports um, where – um, you can, where it has different lines, you can put in uh, bets, uh, you know, basically a dummy account, and then you can uh, see how much you would want or lost, and it'll calculate that for you to see how well your picks would do. So I think that's a, um, a good resource in terms of software. It's an app for your phone. And then, um, you know, in terms of uh, the process that I use myself, it's, um, you know, no different than I use and my past financial job, we use databases. Um, you know, we have a, a large back end um, in terms of data pipelines that, um, you know, we, we pay for uh, sports data, play-by-play data, pitch-by-pitch data, things like things of that nature. And then, um, you know. Is that something that's publicly accessible or is it something that like, you know, people kind of like the Chris database, they're, they're going to be putting, plopping down 10, 20 grand, or is it all customized software and simulation for you guys? Or is, or is there kind of off the shelf stuff? So the, so the predicting software is custom, but the, the data itself, the feeds are, um, you know, they're, they're paid APIs. There's a lot of different service providers for um, these different uh, sports, uh, for the different types of sports data you can get. And uh, there's different levels for different sports. And uh, so it's, it's no different than if you were going to get a Bloomberg feed. Um, you know, they have financial data. We have sports data that we download um, and then use that to create our model. Well, Bloomberg's not cheap either. I think we still pay like twenty five grand. Somebody, somebody needs to disrupt that. Anyway, uh, next, uh, any good last question? Any great sports betting podcasts or Twitter handles we should be following? Yeah, um, I think you know a, a sports betting podcast that's a, a fun one that I go on uh, a few times. It's called Beating the Book um, with Gil Alexander. He's a, a guy that uh, I used to work uh, with, and uh, he. he he does a great job of getting guys uh, he's had 
you know, Jeff Ma, the guy from um, uh, the MIT Blackjack team on this show, uh, talking about sports gambling, looking at ways to, to do, uh, you know, looking at ways to handicap the games. Um, you know, I think that that's, that's a great one to, to start off with. Um, and then obviously there are sort of more mainstream ones that you're going to see from uh, like ESPN. They're going to have a lot of sports betting podcasts, obviously, um, that cater towards that specific demographic. Evie, we always ask people if they have something beautiful, useful, or magical at the end of our podcast. You got anything for us? Yeah. One thing that I really find beautiful, useful, and magical is uh, this extension on Chrome called Ebates. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but essentially the way it works is they are an affiliate marketer, but they split the fee with you. So if you go and buy something on Amazon and they get a 3% fee, then they will send you back something like one and a half percent. And the reason that this really works well on a Chrome extension is because you'll go to websites that you don't even think have a rebate and you'll see you'll get 10% cash back. And then they just uh, either write you a check or they'll PayPal you the money. So for someone who does a lot of their shopping online, like myself, it really comes in handy uh, more than you think. So what, what, What's the name of it again? It's called Ebates, like rebates without an R. That's a that's one of these fascinatingly obvious business plans. And, and I've always thought, and I've never understood why this hasn't taken hold, is so many of the social networks slash websites, so like even Google or Facebook, that or you know, I mean YouTube does this a little bit from the creators, but the people who participate, the people that are involved, that they don't compensate them. So I've always wondered why, say like a, you couldn't build a competitor to Google and say, you know what, we're actually gonna give you a quarter of your search revenue. So when you search for something, you click something, we'll give you a quarter of it. So it, 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 the people that are involved and, and, and even more so for the content creators, the same thing for Facebook, why, why would you not build a social network? It says, you know what, we're gonna return a quarter or half or whatever the revenue is to the, the people involved. We even wrote about this for content creators for one of our old million dollar ideas in FinTech called um, the street.com 2.0 for, for a lot of these websites that aggregate content, but a lot of the content creators and writers and bloggers don't participate. So that's a great idea. You, 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 you just sparked a little bit of a, a weekend project pre Super Bowl. I, I think it can be, like you said, it can be applied to a lot of different industries. Um, I think online shopping is a fairly obvious one that's easy to implement, but, um, even talking about trading or, um, a lot of different things that have high frequency where someone's getting a commission and you can give back some of that to uh, customers. I think that there's a lot of potential there with that idea that you mentioned. Yeah. Very cool idea. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been a lot of fun. I imagine uh, we're going to get a great response. We may have to have you back on every once in a while. Where can people follow you if they uh, want more information on your articles and writing? I think you mentioned my Twitter handle, at EDBetter. I'm, I'm posting all my writing at drbobsports.com. Um, just, uh, let me know if you guys want me to look at anything in particular and, uh, you know, write about anything interesting. I'm always open to new ideas. So great. I, I have a lot. I have my, one of my buddies favorite, we'll call him anonymously, Chris, that's actually his real name, but he, uh, he loves betting. I think is it Oakland 
games when there's a big storm coming in because I think it's like under sea level or something and the field always gets swamped. So weather is his big favorite. We'll talk about weather next time we have you on. Evie Better, thanks so much. Um, Everyone, thanks for taking the time to listen today. We always welcome feedback and questions through the mailbag at feedback at the As a reminder, you can always find the show notes and other episodes at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes. My favorite app is Castro. And if you're enjoying the podcast, hey, leave us a review. We actually read all of them and thank you. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Today's podcast is sponsored by The Idea Farm. Do you want the same investing edge as the pros? The Idea Farm gives small investors the same market research, usually reserved for only the world's largest institutions, funds, and money managers. These are reports from some of the most respected research shops in investing. Many of them cost thousands and are only available to institutions or investment professionals, but now they're yours with the Idea Farm subscription. Are you ready for an investing edge? Visit theideafarm.com to learn more.